0: Welcome to Journey Church 2020, New Year. We have been uh, studying in the book of Acts. We took a break for Advent, and, uh, and so we intentionally are looking at it, and we're intentionally taking our time with it. Because the book of Acts, what we see is that God's church is His plan A. God's plan A for the gospel moving forward is the church. So if the good news, is going to, good news about Jesus is going to spread forward, God's plan A for that is the church. And, and Acts lays out a plan as to what needs to be important in the life of the church. It, it lays out a how-to for us as we move forward. And so at the beginning of the book of Acts, you see this group of people that are followers of Jesus that were told to just wait and pray and that God would meet them there. And the thing that they're waiting for, by the way, Jesus had promised them and said that that the thing they were waiting for would be better for them than Jesus staying with them. Think about that. Jesus himself looks at his followers and says, wait and pray, and the helper will come. And the helper, it would be better for you for me to leave and for you to get the helper. So they don't know what they're waiting for. All they know is that Jesus himself told them that the thing they're waiting for is better than his presence with them. His physical presence is not as good as what the helper will be provided for them. And that just kind of blows my mind. So that's these people are sitting in at the book of Acts as it starts. This group of people, they're just, they're waiting. We've talked about this a lot as people... We're usually not that good of at waiting. Days go by, weeks go by, they're waiting for the, the helper to come, and all of a sudden the wind blows stronger than it has before, and flames start floating above their heads, and they're speaking in not just languages but dialects that they would have been accustomed to from their lineage, and people think they're drunk, and they are say, no, we're not drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. What kind of people do you think we are? think it's an Eagles game day, right? Not that people are drunk down in South Philly right now, I'm sure of it. They've been since last night. But so there's this whole group of people that are stirred up and hearing this, and all of a sudden Peter steps in and he preaches the sermon of his life. He says, no, 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 no. These people that you hear, they're not, they're not drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, About Jesus. And before he's done, 3,000 people come to know Jesus. And the church goes from this little gathering of people in an upper room praying and waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled to 3,000 people. And then all of a sudden, persecution comes in pretty soon thereafter, and the people scatter out of Jerusalem, and the followers of Jesus are all over the ancient world into Asia and even to lower parts of Europe, the Middle East, into Northern Africa. The gospel has spread. A guy named Paul is part of the reason why, it's being, uh, why they're being persecuted. He's a very religious man. He doesn't like the threat that the, that the religious community has against them by following Jesus because they're saying that having faith in Jesus is the only thing you need to save you. You don't need to be saved by the law. The law cannot save you. And it's a threat to everything that he believes, so he starts on this spree to just kill people, imprison people, beat people within an inch of their life, because he, he's going to use fear as a tactic. And on his way to do that, he meets Jesus, and it's a game changer for us. It's a game changer for the church, because this man now is passionately in love with Jesus. And he starts going and planting churches. He starts having influence. And when he walks into town, he has people's ear because he has notoriety from his name and from his past. And he's using that as leverage for the gospel. He's saying, listen, that's who I was. This is who I am now. And I'm only this way because of Jesus, because the spirit of God living inside me, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus came as a baby and lived as a man and was sinless and was the all-atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he's telling the story over and over again. And as he does that, more and more thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. So what we've seen is names come in and places pop up, and we see that Paul's in places in Acts, that later on we have a letter called like the 1st the and 2nd Corinthians that are books of the Bible, and then we realize when we read through Acts, oh wait, he's in Corinth, as he's writing that, and then we, we see that he's in Galatia. We see, that, like today, that he's in Ephesus. As he's, These are the people that he's met, that he's meeting, that he's preaching to, that he's investing in, that he's living life with. And then later on, when he writes a letter back to them, it's a letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesians people. Then he appoints a pastor and he gives us a letter on that as he writes letters to this young man named Timothy. And he says, you're the pastor that I want to lead the flock in Ephesus. What we see in 19, where we're going to focus in today, is that this is exactly where Paul's at right now. So there's a lot there, there's a lot between chapter 1 and chapter 19, but just trust me, if you haven't been along with us for the whole ride, one of the things that's so instrumental for us to understand is that there is a blueprint for what God says should be vitally important to the local church. And not only what, but how. And that is why we're taking so much time to ingrain ourselves and root ourselves into the message of the book of Acts. It's not because the book of Acts is the thing that will save us or the thing that we point to. We point to the whole Word of God, the whole Scriptures. But when we're talking about the context of a local church, we want to exist as close as possible... To what God has laid out a church should operate as. And that's why we want to spend a lot of time figuring this out in the book of Acts. We're taking our time with it. We're doing that on purpose. So today we're in Acts chapter 19. It's on page 641. If you want to turn there in the Bible in front of you, uh, page 641. Now, the first part of this book we're not going to it's not that we're skipping over it it's that uh, for for the sake of getting to what I think the greater point in chapter nineteen is we're going to look at the second half we're going to focus in on chapter uh, nineteen verses twenty one through forty one today but just so you're aware uh, that what we see is that Paul is in Ephesus and that there are uh, there's this there's this this interaction that we see in the Second part, like around verse eleven of chapter nineteen, where there are people that are claiming the name of God and and claiming for miraculous work. They're claiming the name of God because it had gotten to the point where Paul was so well known and the Spirit of God was working so powerfully in and through him that other people were trying to mimic that and gain notoriety themselves. And uh, there's one moment, an instance where these guys are going up and they're casting out demons, and the demon actually responds this Paul you speak of, I know, this God you speak of, I know, but you, I don't know you. So even the demons were well aware of the presence of Jesus in people's lives. Even the demons were well aware who Paul was, but these, these guys who were faking it for their own gain, the demons themselves speak up and say, we know God. We know him well. We know Paul. They're both major threats to our organization, but you, we don't know you. Can you just go away? Even the demons are not threatened by this, and that's the first part of what we see is Paul's in Ephesus, and then we see these men. They're called the sons of Sceva, and, uh, and that's where we pick up in verse 21. Verse 21, we're going to read this together. Uh, you want to follow along with me. Now, after these events, after what I just said... Uh, <coughs> Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. There's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She, whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Erasicus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, "Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are Proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Fascinating passage, and we're going to break that down. But the big idea that we want to drill into today is this. To worship is human. We as human beings, we were created to worship, and that means that worship is inevitable. Everybody, whether they're religious or whether they're irreligious, they'll worship something. Every human will. It's not even a possibility as a human to worship nothing. When uh, Carl Linnaeus classified human beings, he classified us as homo sapiens. That was in 1758. 1758 right in the middle of the Enlightenment, by the way. Homo means human, and sapiens means capable of discerning or reasoning. So we are classified in our genus and species as reasoning humans. And it kind of makes sense that we would be classified like that in the middle of the Enlightenment because human reason and logic were the things that were being glorified. The Enlightenment was this era that was ushered in by philosophers like Descartes, and he, he was famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. So to Carl Linnaeus, the most foundational, basic thing about a human being is our ability to rationalize things, our ability to reason and think. To him, the most basic thing about us was our intellect. But in, in recent years, there's uh, some people that have put out writings like James K.A. Smith and others. There's scholars that are they're quietly suggesting that maybe we haven't been classified correctly. They're suggesting that the ability to reason might not be the thing that is most basic to who we are as people that maybe our classification should instead be homo liturgicus. And that, that is liturgy or worship. We are humans who worship. So that, that what is the most basic to who we are is not our ability to think, but it's our desires, it's what we love, it's what we long for, it's what we shoot for, it's what our goals are wrapped around. We are fundamentally desiring creatures more than rational ones. We aren't aren't primarily defined by what we think, we're instead primarily defined by what we love. That's what a new movement is saying. Now, I doubt that our genus and our species are ever going to be renamed anytime soon, but the Bible in general and what we're looking at today in Acts 19 would affirm the idea that we are more liturgicus than sapien. So we're more worshiping humans than reasoning humans. To worship is human, and since we are created with with this need... To worship something, we can't just eliminate God without creating a God substitute. Something is going to capture our imaginations. Something's going to get our affections of our heart. Something will become the most important thing in our lives. Something will become our ultimate concern. Something will become our highest value, our greatest allegiance. So, in short, worship is inevitable. And worship is powerful, and worship is everywhere we look. So after today, my hope is that that we'll we'll develop that, the ability to see worshipers wherever you look, kind of like the movie The Sixth Sense when the little boy said he could see dead people. That your sixth sense becomes that you can see worshipers wherever you look. Even when you look in the mirror, just don't go wrong with that creepy voice and say, I see worshiping people. So if you're taking notes today, I just want to show you the outline. It's a quick snapshot of what we're going to look at this morning. We're We're going to break down Acts 19, 21 through 41, and we're going to take a look at, one, the power of true worship, the power of idol worship, and how to identify and smash our idols. So first, the power of true worship. Now, you want to look at some background. In chapter 19 of Acts, this occurs during Paul's third missionary journey. And on his third journey, Paul spends over three years teaching in one city, the city of Ephesus. And this, this occurs probably, what we see here, occurs probably about two and a half years into that stay. If you'll see on the screen, you're going to see Ephesus. Ephesus. You see where the map is. You can see where some of the places, maybe if you remember, you remember things like Caesarea. You remember Judea. That, if you see down on the bottom part of the screen, Judea is where uh, the main ministry of Jesus happened in that area. Caesarea, we see Paul there. We see Paul in Antioch. We see Paul is from Tarsus, if you see that coastal city in Cilicia. And uh, there's two Caesareas. There's Judea Caesarea and Cappadocia Caesarea. Paul actually was in both, but his missionary journey that we see went through the northern one. He's in Galatia. And so these different places you see, but I want you to see where Ephesus is. It's almost smack dab in the middle of that map. Do you see it? Now, it's the second largest city in the world at the time next to Rome. Rome is the only city in the world at this time that is larger than Ephesus. Ephesus has a population at this time of about 300,000. And being a large city, it was hugely influential in shaping the culture of the province of Asia. So, that being the case, it was very strange I mean, sorry, very strategic for Paul to spot uh, this place's ministry. It was a strategic spot for him to stop and spread the gospel. Because if you notice, it's a port city as well. So there's a lot of goods being transferred in and out of Ephesus. It's a a major city. And it being the second largest city in the known world to Rome, it it had influence there. In verse 10 of uh, chapter 19, it says that all the residents of Asia, the province in which Ephesus is in, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So a significant number of people are hearing the gospel. They're responding to it. And they're shifting their worship to Jesus rather than all these idols that were so prevalent in the society. And here's the most incredible part. A new direction of their worship begins to have this socioeconomic impact on it. So here's this major city... And what we see beginning in verse 23 is that true worship is evidently a super powerful thing in the culture. Listen to verse 23 again. This is a couple of times we've heard Luke word something this way. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. No little disturbance. This is an understatement, by the way. We're going to get into that a little bit. But but, but Luke has said this as he's writing the Acts of the Apostles, Several times he's used this language that it's interpreted to this. There was no little disturbance. It makes it sound like it was just this minor thing. But anytime you see Luke say that, you should just assume it was a mess, okay? So significant number of people. And just so you're aware, at the end of that verse, it says concerning the way. It's just shorthand for the way of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so his followers abbreviated that and said that they belonged to the way of Jesus. The way is who is Jesus. So the way is just saying Jesus. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So there's this disturbance that comes out uh, around Christianity here in Ephesus, and and it's instigated by a guy named Demetrius. Now, what we know about Demetrius, he's a silversmith. We know that he made his living by making these miniature uh, Temple of Artemis figures, and and the the Temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. Now, very little of the temple remains today. If you were to go over there today, this is what you would see. Very little remains. But we know that it had a, a footprint that was four times the size of the Parthenon. That's bigger than a football field that it had pillars that stood 60 feet high with a stone roof on top of that. It was the largest building that we know about from the first century. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This picture uh, is what an artist's rendering says that it would look like. Imagine that. That's the center of worship in Ephesus. The temple was this crown jewel, and the temple is what they wanted to put the city of Ephesus on the map. Now, Artemis, if you see the picture here of Artemis, she was the Greek equivalent of the Roman goddess Diana, and she was the goddess of the hunt, goddess of fertility. And so she would have been worshipped in ways that would be consistent with those two things. And although Artemis was worshipped all throughout the Greco-Roman world and at least 33 different shrines throughout the region... The temple in Ephesus was the place, it was the epicenter of Artemis' worship. It was where the people from all over the world would travel to come to Ephesus and worship her in that temple. So what's important for us to note is that the Ephesian economy depended largely on this huge amount of tourists that were coming to worship Artemis at the shrine for Artemis. And they would, they would buy trinkets and buy the little idols because maybe they could only afford to make this trek once and they would presumably take these little silver uh, temples of Artemis or Artemis sculptures back to their own places and they would set them down and they would set up their own shrine and they would be able to continue to worship Artemis on their own soil because I'm sure that the trip to Ephesus was not something that was common to everybody. And here's what's amazing. Christianity had spread to such an extent, all over this region, that it had the influence on culture and society. And Demetrius, and and he gathers together all the other craftsmen that are making these things, and they're starting to notice a decline in their sales. So there's been this socioeconomic impact from people responding to the gospel, and turning their worship toward Jesus rather than Artemis. So Demetrius gathers together his fellow craftsmen, and he says this in verse 25. He gathers them together. He says, man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. He pulls them together. He says, listen, guys, this Paul guy, he's convincing people that what we're making isn't legit, that the gods that we're making with our hands aren't really gods. So people have stopped buying them, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm down 18% over last year, and it's just the first quarter. So he goes on to say in verse 27, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, my theory is that Demetrius' main concern is his bottom line. Here's a little piece of advice. When someone calls you out on something, they usually are going to bring in a hook. They're, they're usually going to throw out something at you, especially if they're wrong, by the way, that they try to induce guilt. It's a human tactic. But whatever that person leads with, is usually the main point. So Demetrius leads with hey, 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 whoa. Paul's telling us that this goddess, Artemis, I believe her name is, uh, and the temple you've been making all these dolls and figurines for isn't a real thing. And it's hurting my bottom line. It's probably hurting yours too. We need to shut this guy up so we can keep making some money. Oh, by the way, do you realize that our, our dear Artemis and the temple? It might get downgraded, and people might not take her seriously anymore. He says, it's not just the money and the honor of our trade, but it's also the temple. It might be disgraced. It might be devalued. She may lose her glory and reputation as an object of worship, and then tourism will dry up, and our economy will collapse, and everything will shut down, the world as we know it will come to an end. And it's my professional opinion that now is the time to panic. We have to stop Paul. We have to stop these Christians before the worst thing possible happens. I've said it already, but I think it's incredible that the worship of real the real worship of King Jesus has has impacted Ephesus and the region around it so much that it changed the economic landscape. I think that's astounding. Not only were like the the private personal spiritual lives of these early believers in Ephesus changed, but it changed a whole lot more than that. We see here clear as day that the gospel changed their patterns of what they were spending their money on. It changed their participation in the culture. Now, here's what I think we can learn from this. Worship isn't just what we do on Sunday morning. We can't make the mistake of of just boxing up our worship of Jesus to simply gathering together on Sundays and singing some songs. The true worship is this holistic life. It's encompassing response to the gospel. So, when we internalize the reality that Jesus has died in our place on our behalf instead of us, it changes everything, and our entire lives become one big thank you to what we've been freely given by grace through faith in Jesus. So, Paul put it this way in his letter to the Romans He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he did not go to the cross to ornament and embellish our life. If we wish to have him, then he demands the right to say something decisive about our entire life. We do not understand him if we arrange for him only a small compartment in our spiritual life. Isaac Watt wrote it this way in a hymn, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So what we see in Ephesus, the gospel, had filtered down and it shaped every dimension of their public and their private lives. The Ephesian Christians would have seen the, how absurd, the absurdity that we often hear in modern culture. They, they, would, have, they would have seen it. They would have heard uh, the response of our modern culture saying something like, you know, your Christianity, your spiritual life, your faith, that's really good for you and your private life. I'm glad that's working for you. And you feel like you have some answers. When it comes to the real world, to the public world, to the world we all live in, don't bring that here. It doesn't have a place here. Ephesians would have said, What? Are you crazy? That's not how worship works. True worship of Jesus is a new way of living in every dimension of reality. It changes our dating practices. It changes our marriages. It changes our parenting. It changes the way we relate to our bosses, our co-workers, and our employees. It changes the jobs we take. It changes our business practices. It changes the causes that we embrace, the way we vote, the values we hold, the culture that we're involved in. It changes our perspective on injustice. It changes the way we view and spend our money, the way we give, the way we love, the way we play, the way we live. True worship can't be confined to singing songs on a Sunday. It has to change our entire life. There's not an aspect of our life that is not touched and shaped by authentic worship of Jesus. A privatized faith that makes no difference in how you live the other six days of the week, might be able to be labeled cultural Christianity, but it cannot be labeled true worship of Jesus. What we see here in Acts 19 is that the worship of the Ephesian believers was actually having an economic impact on the craftsmen who made the idols. It's incredible. The question then for us that we have to wrestle with, is will anybody notice a significant change in the suburbs north of Philly because of our worship? Will anybody notice a significant change in the suburbs north of Philly because of our worship? Will they see a significant change in how money is spent and how time is used Well, they see a significant change in what is held as important and valuable because 300,000 people lived in Ephesus, and it started to change the market because of people living like Jesus. It started to hurt business owners that profited off of sins, bottom line. There is power in worship, but we have to admit that there's power in idol worship as well. What we looked at, it shows us the power that idols can have over people's lives. And it's going to show us, it, it's going to show it to us primarily through the Ephesians' overreaction. When they, when they perceive that their idol is being threatened. So Demetrius finishes his speech with his fellow craftsmen. And then we read in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged. It's a funny word, Enraged. And we're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Erasticus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So when, so when Artemis, their idol, the source of their significance and security is threatened. The idol-making craftsmen become intensely angry, and they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they begin to stir up a whole city. Mind you, a whole city, whenever Luke says that, whole city. How many people is he talking about? 300,000 people. He's starting to stir up the whole city. This crowd gathers. There's chaos. There's mayhem. There's confusion. And in a mob, they grab two of Paul's travel companions, and they rush through town together into the theater. Now, they would have gone down the Arcadian Way, which looks like this today. That's where they would have gone. It was a road paved with these giant marble slabs and had a colonnade, marble columns that lined each side. That's what's left of it. And this road ended at the Ephesus Amphitheater. That's where it ended. You see the road coming down towards it? That's the Arcadian Way. It would have ended there. And that's also largely intact today. You can see it, it's pretty good craftsmanship. And it is huge. This thing can hold 24,000 people. So imagine this place filled with a mob of angry people. The last place you would want to be is to have 24,000 people packed in there or more with their ire and their anger pointed at you. But let's look what Paul's response is to this mob. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him go. Paul sees this angry mob and is like, ooh, let me go talk to them. Why? Is he crazy? This shows just how bold he was about sharing the gospel. But in wisdom, he had friends, thankfully, that stepped in and said, no, Paul, as bold as you are, this is a bad idea. And they kept him from going into the mob. And verse 31 says this, And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. He even received words from some of the friendly government officials who told him, Paul, stay away from the theater. This is really, really bad. It's a mob. They're not going to listen to you. Now, I really love Luke's summary in verse 32. Luke says this, Now, some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't know why they had come together. I think it's great how Luke summarizes that. Some of them were really angry. Some of them were yelling. But for the most part, this whole amphitheater is filled with tens of thousands of people and they don't really all know why they're there. They got to remember that there's no news stations. This is long before the internet. So you see a mob running through town. You go, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to go find out. You go to your business. You flip over the gone fishing sign, and you run, and you join them to figure out what's going on. You get to the amphitheater with them, and you go, why are we mad? I'll be mad. What are we mad about? Someone tell me why we're mad. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this poor Jewish guy named Alexander, who probably isn't even a Christian, by the way, he, he, he gets appointed, great friends that he has, to get the attention of the crowd. Most likely, he just wants to try to explain the difference between Judaism and Christianity, and he wants to distance himself from his fellow Jews from the whole thing so that their lives aren't threatened, he tries to speak. But these idol-worshiping Ephesians, who wouldn't have cared to understand that difference anyway, they just begin to chant. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And there's energy and there's fury and there's anger and it erupts and this chant goes on for two hours. So Alexander standing up and going, all it did was make them more mad. So now they've got everybody chanting this and they go on for two hours. So what we see here is overreaction, right? Can anyone say that this is rational behavior? This is extremely irrational behavior. The rage that's created when an idol gets threatened is completely irrational. Have you ever tried shouting something for two hours? I mean, I've gone to concerts where I've sang along with most of the songs, but I haven't even done that for two hours, and my voice is shot. You imagine being with tens of thousands of other people, and for two hours straight, all you do is yell at the top of your lungs, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's likely that most of this crowd got hoarse, they lost their voices, which may be the only reason that the town clerk's able to get their attention. In verse 35, we see that he gets their attention. Quieted, he quiets the crowd. After two hours, their voices are pretty much shot. He's able to get their attention, and he says this, Man of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the great Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? This guy sounds crazy too, by the way. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. We have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the Craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Now, what Luke is doing here by quoting the town clerk at length is brilliant. And in a clever way, Luke is sending a message to Rome that it's not the Christians that are a threat to peace and stability in the region, but it's really the idol worshipers that are. Luke is writing this down and recording this. He wants people to know that the ones who are irrational and crazy and causing the big rebellion in town, it wasn't the Christians. We're the ones getting blamed for it, but it wasn't us. So he records every word of what the town clerk says. The Christians were being accused of being disruptive. They were accused of being underminers. They were accused of turning the world upside down. We saw that in Acts 17. But it's not the Christians that Rome needs to worry about. It's these idol worshipers who are rioting and causing chaos, and they were causing instability, and they were, they were bringing in a whole bunch of disorder. So when we see this frenzy and this rage and this lost control that's happening and this, this irrational response when their idols get threatened... When the object of their worship, the ultimate source of their significance, the ultimate source of their security was perceived to be under attack, they panicked and they totally lost control. Idol worship is a very powerful thing. Now, before you start thinking, those poor, ancient, idol-worshiping Ephesians. It's a good thing we don't have idols like that today. Let me remind you that idol worship is just as prevalent today. It takes different forms, and, and it even is more insidious because our idols aren't as blatantly obvious in our culture. We don't build temples of Artemis. We build stadiums. We still bow down to small g gods that we wield incredible power over us. And although we might not have a miniature shrine to Artemis in our home that we're bowing down to, we still have our idols. Because if you remember, we are homo liturgicus. We still look to created things rather than a creator to give us what our heart longs for. We look for meaning, purpose, transcendence, joy, peace, significance, security. We can make an idol out of anything. Careers, family, sex, money, success, status, recognition, children, Happiness, comfort, approval, power, control, any of these things. We can turn into an idol and live for them. We can make those things the things that we worship. Let me give you a definition that I've found to be helpful. An idol is anything that is functionally more important than God to our happiness, identity, hope, and meaning. An idol is anything that is functionally more important than God to our happiness, identity, hope, and meeting. What makes idols so powerfully dangerous is that they're often good things. Good things that have become God things in our lives, and we all have them. So I want to close out our time together today by giving you some practical advice about idolatry. That leads us to our third point, how to identify and smash our idols. Now, I want to give four diagnostic questions to help us all identify our idols in our lives. I got these from a pastor friend of mine who I'm pretty sure he stole them from Tim Keller. But they're still really good. The first question is, what do I naturally daydream about? What do I naturally daydream about? When you're quiet and alone and thinking about the future, where does your mind wander? What do you wish would come true? Is it winning the lottery Is it getting that dream house? Is it a vacation that you want to take? Is it a promotion at work that will make you one of the group or give you more financial margin? Is it getting something back that you've lost? Is it a relationship that's lacking in your life? Is it getting married? Is it getting out of being married? Is it having kids of your own? Is it finally getting all the kids out of the house and off to college? Is it graduation from school? Is it getting the keys to a car? Is it retirement? Because when we daydream, If I could just have that, if only that would happen, if I could just get to that, then I would be happy. Then I'd know who I was. Then I'd know who I'd arrived. Then I know I'd be safe. Then everything would be okay. Whatever that is may just be your idol. Question two, where do I often overspend? Where do you tend to splurge and blow your budget? Jesus said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also, which means your credit card statement is a mirror to your soul. Worship is your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your wallet's direction. So where do I often overspend? Maybe you're hearing you're saying, I never blow my budget. That might actually be a clue to your idol too, because maybe a big balance is where you're finding your security. Question number three. Where do I look to justify my existence? Some of you might remember the movie Chariots of Fire. It's about uh, an Olympic sprinter named Eric Little. One of his fellow sprinters is a guy named Harold Abrams, and there's a scene where Harold Abrams is anticipating his next race, and he says this quote, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Finish this sentence. I know I'm somebody because because I'm popular at school, because I'm a good musician, because a, a certain person loves me, because I excel at my job because I'm better at this sport than most anybody is, because my kids have turned out or are turning out well, because I'm a good dad or a good mom, because I have a large salary, because I have a nice house, a nice car, a nice boat, because I'm a good church attender, because I'm a good pastor. Where do you find your identity? Question number four. Over what do I tend to have surprisingly strong emotions? Isn't that what we see happening in the passage? The anger that is quickly stirred up in the mob when their idol is threatened. Look at your anger. What makes your anger flare up? Look at your fear. What am I afraid of? Behind the cloak of our greatest fear in life usually lurks the largest idol in our heart. Look at what makes you ecstatic. Ecstatic. What do you get super excited about? Look at your overwhelming sadness. What would devastate you if you lost it? If we pull on our emotions, we usually find our idols dangling from their roots. Once we've identified our idol or our idols, how do we smash them? Here's what won't work. Behavior modification. Because really at the root of our behavior modification is just idol worship issues. If you're someone who overeats, your problem isn't food and gluttony. Your problem is worship and idolatry. You worship food. When you're sad, you go to food for comfort. When you're happy, you go to food to rejoice. When you've done something good, you reward yourself with food. It's all worship act. So you don't have a food problem. You don't have a refrigerator problem. You have a worship problem. I wrote that very convicted, by the way. If you commit sexual sin, your problem isn't really sexual. Your problem is that you're worshiping the wrong God. You're worshiping sex or pleasure or convenience, and as a result of worshiping the wrong God, you commit the worship act of sexual immorality or adultery. If you lose your temper, you get violent or you're mean-spirited. You don't have an anger issue. You have a worship problem. You probably worship yourself. You've been out of shape when someone else doesn't have the same object of worship, i.e., you. We could counsel you. We could say, we want to modify your behavior, so we're going to give you principles of anger management, which might be helpful. But then all we might do for you is change your idol. So, oh good, you don't worship anger anymore. Now your worship is control. And because you now worship control, you don't lose your anger. Oh, this is so good. We've exchanged idols, but at least now we've found an idol that the rest of us can live with. You see, if you uproot an idol without replacing it with the worship of Jesus, another one is just going to take its place. This is where John Calvin says rightly that the human heart is, Is an idol factory. The answer is not behavior modification, it's worship alteration. So once we've identified our idols, we've got to take them to Mount Calvary instead of Mount Sinai. If you're part of the Bible study, ladies, this might resonate with you because this is something that Acts really points us, um, Exodus points us to. Let me explain what I mean by that. Mount Sinai is where the law was given a list of do's and don'ts. When we take our idols there, all we'll try to do is behavior modification. God's law says I shouldn't do this, so now I'm going to try really, really hard not to do it. We look at our desires and we go, no, 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 not going to do it. And we might be able to white-knuckle it for a little while and feel some sense of pride and superiority over those that don't have as much willpower as us. But we'll eventually fail. And we'll end up sitting in a puddle of our own guilt Shame and self-pity will come in. We'll start the process all over again. It's exhausting. And it doesn't work to change our hearts. The whole purpose of Mount Sinai was to show us that we can't actually do it on our own and to point us to Mount Calvary. we take our idols to Mount Calvary instead, that's where we see Jesus. The sinless one, the Lamb of God who died in our place on our behalf instead of us. Who shed His blood so that we could be forgiven. Who gave His life so that we could live. Who experienced the full rejection of God so that we might experience the full acceptance of God apart from our moral performance. It's at Mount Calvary where we see the beauty of the gospel. That we're more sinful and idolatrous than we ever want to believe. But more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever thought possible. And slowly but surely, the affections of our hearts begin to shift. We begin to look at Jesus as the ultimate source of our happiness. We begin to look at Jesus as the ultimate source of our identity, of our hope, of our meaning. He becomes our ultimate treasure. Then... And only then will our idols be smashed. Then and only then will they loosen their death grip on our hearts. So I think it's fitting that we close this morning with a time of worship and song. I think it's fitting that we spend some time singing back to the Lord. I think it's fitting that we that we close our time with worship to remind our hearts of who this life is really all meant to be about anyway. And spoiler alert, it's not you and I. God, thank you. Thank you for giving us uh, your presence, giving us yourself. God, our hearts are, are restless. Restless. Until they find rest in you, all I am, my life defined by I have been crucified with Christ, God, we are worshippers that's that's who we are by nature may the the thing that we worship not be something that That can be formed by the hands of man, but something that has been graciously gifted to us by a loving God who gave us his presence, who gave us his son, who gave us a rescue, gave us a way out through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't have to be worshipers of anything that won't give us true security here on earth. Lord, as we find our security in you, may you flush out more and more of the idols in our hearts. Allow us to feel and experience that grace and find our identity, our life defined in you.